0: Darling, I was on a vacation recently and stayed at an Airbnb. And then I realized that while I was away, my empty house could be making money, honey. If you're someone like me that is busy and not home all the time, your home could be an Airbnb. And it's actually pretty simple to get started. Even if you don't have a whole house, you could start with just a spare room. Hey, everyone. This is Jonathan, and we're on spring break this week. So we're bringing you one of our favorite episodes from the archive. It's gorgeous, as you are. We are going to get curious together. We love you so much. Thanks for listening, and let's dive in. Welcome to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Van Ness. We have such an incredible guest today. Welcome to the show, Dr. Sabrina Strings, who is an associate professor of sociology at the University of California, Irvine. Her book, Fearing the Black Body, The Racial Origins of Fat Phobia, was published by NYU Press, yes, NYU Press, in 2019. Welcome to Getting Curious. Should I say Professor Strings, or do you want me to call you Sabrina?
1: Please call me Sabrina, and thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here.
0: Oh, yeah, thank you so much. Okay, so let me just give you, like, a little teeny bit of context. One... I'm getting curious on Netflix, which was like a TV version of this podcast. We did an episode on snacks. I wanted to remove shame from the conversation of like disordered eating, binge eating, both of things that I suffer from and have for a long time. And I wanted to be able to kind of remove shame and like talk about it more freely But there was a lot of feedback around fat phobia and around diet culture. So what I want to kind of start off with as we're diving in is true or false, fat phobia is about health. Sub question, why do you think so many people get this answer wrong?
1: Fat phobia is absolutely not about health, because what people like to say frequently is that there's some type of association between weight and health outcomes. And so let's just take a corollary for a second. There's also an association between race and health outcomes. But we wouldn't say, oh, you know what? We feel good being negrophobic because black people have poor health outcomes. Right. So already we can understand that phobia about a group of people that we believe are unhealthy is already problematic. But then there's the question of whether or not being so-called overweight or obese, which I always use in quotes because these apply to a particular orientation to science that I find to be non-scientific. But anyways, is it the case that being so-called overweight or obese is somehow proof of being sick? And the answer to that is no. We get this from a series of maneuvers, largely that happened in the United States in the middle of the 20th century. What was happening is that there were a few prominent doctors, all of whom were white, who were like, we need to create a measure of the relationship between weight and health that is not coming from insurance companies who had been the ones originating these, but is our own tool. And we're going to do something called body mass index, which is arbitrary, but we control it, don't we? That's effectively how we've gotten here. It's so disturbing to go back into the research and recognize just how little data exists about any true relationship between weight and health. And so that's why so much of my work is an interrogation of how we got here and an attempt to undermine these false associations. Which kind of reminds me of, like, we did this amazing
0: episode of Getting Curious, a podcast with this, like, biological anthropologist who studies hair and, like, the evolution of hair. But in hair school, we learned that, like, the shape of your follicle is, like, what determines the texture of your hair. And it turns out it's a full lie. And that has a lot of implications that, you know, people can go back and listen to in that episode if you haven't listened to it. But it's very interesting. So if fat phobia isn't about health, what is it about?
1: When talking about the question of health, there is a very clear origin in the United States because the U.S. was the country par excellence trying to say um, we need to figure out what is the relationship between fat and health or illness. But when talking about fat phobia in general that has existed in our society for quite some time, we have to go back to the era of slavery, which is where fat phobia really took off. What was happening in the early decades of the slave trading enterprise was that there were a lot of Europeans who were encountering Africans for the first time, and many of them were excited. They were like, oh, look at this. People don't appreciate that the very first racial scientific treatise was more or less uh, a white Frenchman who was describing the figures of women in various parts of the world. So questions about feminine attractiveness have always been central to racialization. And so to the extent that in the early race science, they argued that, well, some Black women, you know, those ones in Senegal, they have some of the best figures in the world. What took place in the later centuries within the slave trade was a reconfiguration of these values. So instead of people encountering Africans and saying, oh, look how attractive their figures are, people encountered Africans and said, their figures are proof of the difference between Europeans and Africans. And we already know that Europeans are the elite group of people in the world and Africans are the inferior group. So we need to reconfigure our relationship to weight and our relationship to beauty. So rather than thinking that weight, like being fat is an index of beauty, which was a value in the, like say, 15th century by the 18th century, There was this new idea that, oh, no, fatness is related to blackness and blackness is inferior. And therefore, thinness should be related to whiteness and thinness should be our white aesthetic. Mm,
0: Fuck. So what's the difference between like, you know, 1500s and 1600s, like at the inception of like the transatlantic slave trade and then like 1800s? And before we dive in, can you brief listeners on how art can help us understand this history?
1: Yeah, I really like that question. Because when we are talking about our contemporary aesthetics, we often look to the media. We look to magazines. We look at models on runways. We look at television shows, films. These are the ways in which we can understand our shared aesthetic values. And art played the same role throughout much of western history. There were a number of different artists who weren't just painting women they thought were beautiful, but painting what they thought were representations of beauty with a capital B. That being the kind of beauty that we are all supposed to line up behind. So that when we're looking at for example the 15th, 16th and even some parts of the 17th centuries, and again these are the early You know, relatively early periods of the slave trade, there were voluptuous women. There were fat women. There were undulating folds. These were the things that were prized. But in the late 17th century, which was the dawn of race science, then we're starting to get a very different depiction from European artists. By the middle of the 18th century, you can see the stark contrast from what was happening in the Renaissance. By that period, by the Enlightenment period, the women who were drawn were drawn to be very demure, very quiet-seeming, very refined, and also very thin. And so we get that this is taking place. This is largely being archived through the space of Western art.
0: Oh, my God, Sabrina. Oh, my God. You're, like, lighting my world up right now because it's, like, it's (laughs) so true. Like, you think of those images, like, those Botticelli images of, like, you know, exposed breasts, like, beautiful, like, full bodies, like, there's no shame. It's just, like, you know, naked and stuff. And then, I mean, yeah. obviously, like you know, small penises were like the cat's meow back then. We learned They're, like all about a small penis in like Greek and Roman times. But then, the as they get a little bit further down, it's like it's so true. Like all of a sudden, women are like extremely clothed. They do get much smaller, like just teenier. That's so interesting. Yes hmm. Yes. OK. What other documents and archives uh, did you get to use in in your research?
1: Oh, gosh, I was calling on pretty much anything that I could. I was using newspapers and magazines from the United States. I was using scientific treatises, anything that I thought would be useful to the exploration of how is it that women were supposed to look? How is it that black people were supposed to look? You know, these were supposed to be seen in opposition. That is the women they were talking about usually were white women. And when they were talking about black women, there was the sense that, oh, this is wrong. And so this is how we get this idea that white femininity and black femininity are supposed to be so visually distinct because there was this array of archival materials that were trying to suggest that there is something inherently different about white women and black women. But not just that they're inherently different, but that we also must police these boundaries. White women must never find themselves themselves trying to look black, right? Um, Because that would be deemed a loss of status. But black women too are never supposed to be seen as trying to quote unquote look white because then they're trying to aspire to something that is above their station.
0: Mm. I, I had an intrusive thought. I'm going to be honest. I did have an intrusive thought. Obviously it's like a hard right. Like, I couldn't help but think of Rachel Dolezal. Oh, no. Who did (laughs) the most. I get it. She did the most. She did the most. Did you see that documentary?
1: I didn't because I was all full up with Rachel Dolezal. In in a way, there's almost a fine line between a Rachel Dolezal and a Khloe Kardashian. You know, it's just like, I don't know how many times the Kardashians have been called out for blackfishing. And so they would not come out and say we are black, but they just happen to choose these aesthetics that are normally associated with blackness. And so there is this way in which Rachel Dolezal's real crime was to say, I'm black. <laughs> you know, we wonder what would have happened to her if she simply didn't say that. If she just, oh, okay, I'm gonna get myself a deep tan, put this perm on and get my um, ghetto earrings. Like, you know, I'm gonna do all that, but just not say the word black. I'm
0: so glad I went with that intrusive thought and just like let myself, I was like, if I put my foot in my mouth like that, it is what it is. It's not the first time, but that's so true. That is so fucking true. And also I think the reason that I thought of her was just that like this idea of like policing the boundaries of like whiteness and like, like just like we learn about transphobia so often it's like, Our fights against transphobia now, like, we've been having them for hundreds of years, but we're made to think that they just started right now. But it's, like, this whole idea of, like, you know, a Khloe Kardashian or a Rachel Dolezal, like, that's also not new. Oh, this is such a good question to come back from that with. Hello, what does it take to center Black women in your work when so much of the historical documentation is written by white men?
1: Oh, gosh, that is such a fruitful question because when I started to decide, okay, I'm going to investigate how Black people felt about this, I was like, oh, there's no archives um, that I can turn to for that? You know, of course there isn't. There was this entire politics of trying to keep Black people illiterate. So Black people did not have access to the means of publication. So what I could find was largely things that were either written by white men about Black people or written by white women about Black women specifically. That was another important finding because so much of what what had been talked about in the 80s and 90s about the slender ideal was white women responding to the demand that they be slender and that it was a gendered issue and women's oppression. And I'm not going to suggest that those things aren't true, but given their racial privilege, they were ignoring this huge history of the way in which their very ancestors were also using the thin ideal to prove their superiority to Black women. And so there is this way in which a lot of what I'm able to describe are the racist forces Imputing on the black body without really being able to describe how black people responded to this. And so the last thing I'll say is that because so much of this conversation was taking place in elite white spaces, I also found that there are a number of white folks who were not talking about it in the South. So take a minute to think about that. That is to say that a lot of the racist productivity As it surrounded, the policing of body size was taking place in so-called liberal spaces.
0: Mm. Yes. That's another thing that I think for me is like, I'm from like a rural city in Illinois, but like growing up in the late 80s, I was born in 87, graduated high school in 2004. But as a much younger kid, I remember like when I started to learn about like, slavery and segregation, thinking, like, oh, well, this is Illinois, so, like, we were actually like, fighting for the North, so, like, we didn't do that up here, so, like, you fucking, like, busted hacks down there, you know, <laughs> being all racist, that must <laughs> have been, y'all were fucked up, but we, up, we didn't, you know, but then I, you know, I get a little older, and I realize, like, oh, segregation was in, like, the Continental 48, didn't matter where you were, and, like, people were investing in slavery in the North and in Europe like we're holding up these systems like from all over the place and so like the indictments like I'm just not surprised to hear that and it's fascinating that the mental mechanics and the mental gymnastics was taking place in liberal cities but then like the Mm -hmm. actual like carnage and violence and but also that carnage and violence and death was happening in the North too because they were like you know capturing people and like you know being all fucked up so it's like it's just I hate it. I hate it here. And, you know, whatever. It's (laughs) It's
1: so problematic. But I love the way you put that. It's true. There were different types of violence that were taking place in the South and the North. We hear all the time about the the violence of slavery, what was going on on plantations. But we don't uh, hear enough about the violence that was going on against Black bodies in the North. And there's a a study that just came out today in the the Washington Post that there were something like 70 Harvard officials who owned slaves. (laughs) You know, it's like... Hmm. You know, what does it mean that some of our revered institutions were also implicated in some of our more shameful institutions?
0: And then there like continues to be no like accountability for that. Mm hmm. So when you when you were talking about the, the white women that wrote about black women, was that like just like OG Karens, just like yeah. OG like Lauren Boebert, like Marjorie Taylor Greene stuff?
1: It was a difficult thing because, you know, a lot of what survives are the speech of elite folks. So, you know, definitely there were those white women who resisted the slender ideal. Some of them were also abolitionists. And so there, there are certainly those white women who are like, wait, this is wrong and we need to counter this. But I don't think so many of them during the early 19th century, which is largely when these magazines were popular, were resisting it on racial grounds. They would have resisted it on the grounds of humanism, but they would not have said, hey, racial hierarchies are wrong. That's what's so, I suppose, insidious about these forms of, quote unquote, science, race science and obesity science. They're trafficking in this very same problem, which is that people can recognize that something is wrong here, but they don't often get to the root of the problem. And racialization is at the root.
0: Mm. Mm. OK, so, <laughs> yes. You mentioned earlier about, like, the Enlightenment era. So, like, what time frame does that put us in again? Like, the Enlightenment
1: era? So, we're looking at the long 18th century. Do you guys remember that episode when we learned
0: about what the long century means? We learned about it for the Georgian England one Because I was like, what's the long? I'm oh, like, oh, yes, I love history. Okay, yes, <laughs> obsessed. So... Okay. So when we talk about like the Enlightenment era, it's like the long 18th century. So it's like right before the 1700s start until like,
1: like the 1680s to the early 1800s.
0: So in that era, as we, as we, you know, arrived to the Enlightenment era, the ideas around fatness are changing. How is fatness seen and understood like between men and women?
1: Yeah. That's a crucial distinction because in fact, it was men's bodies who were regulated first which is to say that it wasn't the case that so many men were being shamed on the streets the way fat people would be shamed on the streets today. But it was the case that men who found themselves to be intellectuals, who found themselves to be leaders of society, especially those individuals who were working at universities, thought it to be very important that they maintain a slender physique. For them, Slenderness was proof that they were quote unquote hard students, that they cared so much about learning about the world and about making an impact in the world that they, that they decided to let go of all of these low pleasures like eating and drinking and fornication and all those things that they really actually probably really care a lot about. But they claimed that they didn't want anything to do with this. So what took place first, and this was largely in the 16th and 17th centuries in which there were a number of men who were like, we think that the intellectuals, the clever, the cunning folks, these are the slender men. And it wasn't until the rise of race science, which suggested, "Mm, in addition, fat people tend to be Black, that they said, oh, well, in addition to not wanting fatness for ourselves for intellectual reasons, we don't want fatness for our women for aesthetic reasons, right? So there was this interesting way in which men's bodies were regulated first in this space. And then also it's just like, Obviously, like, I, I just, I, I can't
0: help but think about it, too, because it's, like, at this time in of, like, eugenics and, like, the influx of eugenics and, like, Darwinism and all of this, it's, like, that's also when, like, the distinction between, like, men and women starts to happen, just period, too. So was there a difference between, like, how, like, fat white women or, like, fat black women? And even just, this is an interesting thing for me. I once got in trouble about this on Queer Eye because one of the heroes referred to himself as fat. And I was like, you're not fat, you're gorgeous. And then these people on Twitter um, were like, girl, like you, what you, so you can't be like gorgeous and fat. And I, and I was like, oh, like I had to interrogate like my own subconscious fat phobia that like I've been you know living with, but didn't even know that it was there. And so it's like, when I asked this question about like, was there a difference between like how fat white women and fat black women were treated even just saying that I feel like I need to be like oh wait I shouldn't say that like that's like but it's like that's fierce but I just think it's interesting that even after everything I know I mean I've like literally just wrote a book where there's an essay about like body neutrality and body positivity I still feel this like knee-jerk reaction to like worry about after I like just feeling like that is a derogatory word. Like this learning is in me so deep and it is so hard to like farm it out because you just get so, I get so defensive about it and just so like worried about it. I just, it's still so in there. So anyway, back to the question, was there a difference between how fat white women <laughs> and fat black women were treated in the Enlightenment era?
1: I would say that there is. And largely it was because fat Black women during the Enlightenment era were invisibilized. They were just a specter. So thinking about the way in which slavery worked, it was like, okay, European colonists would go to Africa. They would steal people um, from the continent and then take them to one of the colonies. It was rare that African people would actually make their way back to various European cities. So a lot of the writings about fat black women um, were making their way to Europe, but rarely did Europeans see these women. And so instead of there being this real visceral reaction to people that you actually know or can touch, it was a reaction to an idea about bodies. And so because there was this narrative that fatness is black. White fat women were highly likely to be criticized, to be condemned, to be ridiculed because of the sense that they were behaving in a way that was out of bounds for their race.
0: My friend, Ashley Marie Preston, who I love, she said something that's like stuck with me for a long time. She said like white supremacy will eat its own young. Oof. And it's true because like, I am like a queer HIV positive, like white person who also has like been in different size bodies of like what it's considered like conventionally attractive. So it's like, I have experienced some of the ramifications of white supremacy, but still as a white person. So I still have like privilege within that, but it's like white supremacy is fucking up white people too. Like it's fucking up everybody. And this was like created by these like select and like elite I'm holding up air quotes like elite white men in the fucking 1600s. And meanwhile, we're all still fucking killing each other over it. And just like not seeing each other's humanity over it, which I just think is like so frustrating when we realize that a lot of these fights that we're having are hundreds of years old. And like not everyone is like seeing the reality of that, which is just get it together. Come on. Don't you just love when someone looks at you and says, what were you up to last night? Well, no matter how late you were up the night before, Lumify Redness Reliever Eye Drops can help your eyes look more refreshed and awake. Lumify dramatically reduces redness in just one minute to help your eyes look brighter and whiter for up to eight hours. No wonder it has over 6,000 five-star reviews on Amazon. You won't believe your eyes. You know you can trust them, though, because they're made by the eye care experts at Bausch & Lomb, and they're backed by six clinical studies. Eye doctors trust them, too. They're the number one recommended redness reliever eye drop. The one and only Lumify is an amazing drop that will have people saying something's different about you in the best way possible. So check out LumifyEyes.com to learn more. If you're like me, the threat of fascism is weighing on you this year but even when the F word is uttered, way too few of us are considering the full scope of the danger, let alone how to really stop it. The Refuse Fascism podcast, hosted by Sam Goldman, names it, dissects it, and connects in-depth analysis of what fascism is with the understanding and urgency we need to defeat it. And she is joined by great guests to discuss the threat of civil war, attacks on abortion rights and trans rights, Trump and the Theocrats, Project 2025, efforts to erase history and critical thinking, and much more. Check out recent episodes featuring Kathleen Ballou, Jeff Charlotte, Sarah Posner, Wujahat Ali, Dahlia Lithwick, and many more. Subscribe to the Refuse Fascism podcast on your listening platform of choice or go to refusefascism.org slash podcast. Did the ways in which fat white women and fat black women were treated... Differ depending on where you were in Europe.
1: I think that a lot of the early artwork that was valorizing voluptuous physiques, including Black women's physiques, and this is, you know, the time before the Enlightenment, those were being painted in um, like the Dutch lowlands in Spain and then also in parts of Italy. But when we're talking about where the slender ideal really took off in Europe, we're talking about England and France. I always think that there is a tremendous irony in the ways in which race scientists who came from France largely represented black women's bodies and the contemporary fetishization that goes on in France about black women's bodies to which I am you know can speak to um I thought oh like how can it be that these two histories are the french history you know that's there's so much more to mind there and you know I think that when we're talking about the United States there was a way in which fatness across race was policed and degraded in the North. And in the South, if you were Black, you were going to be degraded on the basis of your Blackness. People didn't really care as much about your size. Um, And also, if you were a voluptuous white woman in the South, you were given more room to shine. I want to say like in the early 20th century, there was even like this territorial battles that were going on within white America. They were like, okay, we got our Tennessee beauty and look at this figure, you know, represent. And then they would be like, but then our New York beauties look like this. And this was like... Like the whole debate about who were the true American beauties. And as you might expect, the beauties in the South were thicker than the beauties in the North.
0: Mm. So as we like get out of like the enlightenment era and also like through the enlightenment era, like 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, there's like cotton and there's like sugar. And like those two industries are like really what's powering the economy of like the 1700s and 1800s and obviously like race is really like malevolently like woven through that. How did sugar production and consumption shape ideas about fatness in the US and in Europe in these like 1600s to 1800s?
1: Well, we have to keep in mind, even though sugar is ubiquitous now, sugar was a rare commodity throughout much of Western history. And so the way in which sugar started to really tick up in availability was through the slave trade. You know, obviously it was like slaves in the colony who were working the sugar plantations and sort of cultivating it and that Crop was then taken to Europe so that when sugar became widely available in places like England, there were a lot of people, I mean, thinking about the role of Protestantism and Puritanism in a country like England, there are a lot of people who are like, we do feel like that you're eating in a way that does not serve God. And so interestingly enough, there was this very clear religious regulation surrounding diet. And so one of the individuals who was prominent in trying to reframe the diets of English people in the 18th century uh, was this Protestant by the name of George Shane. And his thing was: okay, I am drinking far too much. Sugar sweetened beverages, you know, I'm having vertigo. My whole situation is messed up. What I need to do is get my life right. And she's like, okay, I adopted a milk diet, you know, no sugar, none of these types of drinks that are supposed to excite the system, just a very simple milk diet, right? Milk and seeds. Now that sounds disgusting (laughs) and yet. It's supposed to work because now it takes you out of this, you know, investment in the oral appetites that are not for God and puts you more in a space of eating in a way that, quite honestly, we might today call clean.
0: I I could watch you do impressions of people from history. Like, it's really <laughs> like, are you on TikTok? Because you need to be impersonating these fuckers on TikTok because it's, it's really genius. So, okay. So... <laughs> There's like a religious context. So because, you know, it's so hard for people to realize like that multiple histories are happening at one time. Like, I'm so guilty of this. Like, I never realized that like the Roman Empire and the Greek Empire were like happening at the same time. And when I I was like, what? So because American and European history is happening like at the same time in the Enlightenment period and then after that, I mean, obviously America wasn't called it yet, but like all these histories are happening at the same time. And we've already kind of talked about it a little bit. We've talked about how, like, at this time of, like, the, you know, early 1900s, the U.S. is getting, like, Tennessee bells are like this and Georgia peaches are like that. And the New York Mm -hmm. ladies are like this. So they're already kind of getting their idea of, like, you know, regional beauties and, like, but, like, why the fuck have we always been doing that to women, I guess is one question. It's like, you know, being like, cause like, do we have like, this is like what our males look like in New York. Like, look, the dick size in New York. Look at the, <laughs> look at the pecs over here in Missouri. Like, look, like I just, which I would have much more, you know, I would have gone to that show. Like that's okay. what I would have been into, you know, like, I mean, just like a really like hot, sexy, like Mr. America, like, okay. Oh, you know, but maybe not in the, it would have been, I'm sure it would have been way too whatever so, focusing. <laughs> what about magazines, honey? Because you were saying, we were talking about art and like the Enlightenment period. And I almost feel like the art and like the way that that art was kind of like, you know, stored in history, like that was almost like the cover of like Vogue and Elle and Harper's Bazaar, which just back then. Like those are like the idealized versions of beauty back then. But then we actually got like magazines and print that started to do that like later. So what role did magazines have in like creating this like American beauty standard as we get kind of like out of the Enlightenment period and more into like contemporary history
1: magazines played such an integral role to the dispersal of this ideal. So keeping in mind that when this started, there were just a couple of people either in the colonies writing about what they supposedly saw amongst Africans or Europeans who had never been to Africa at all, but had received these reports from the colonies and decided to reproduce them. So a lot of it was just hearsay. But once this kind of notion made its way into magazines, it proliferated rapidly. We might imagine the reasons why, because part of what magazines are doing and they're trying to sell us something. They're trying to sell us a lifestyle, they're trying to sell a certain brand. They're wanting us to consume more. First they want us to consume more magazines, but also they want us to consume the products that are being advertised in the magazines. And that was no different in the 19th century. There were still ads, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And so part of what they were doing, they were selling weight loss cures you know, snake oil, as you might have it, but nevertheless, they were considered rate loss cures. They were trying to sell women a certain way to be a woman. They were selling an imagined community of largely white femininity. And if you are a white person who might be, let's say, an immigrant to the United States and immigrants are degraded, they are derided, they are deemed to be outside of our American community. One way, if you are a European immigrant, that you might be able to prove your belonging is to take a magazine, follow its advice, and then reform yourself into the American ideal.
0: Right, and I feel like that was really romanticized. Like it's a sign of respect if you come to the country and learn its language and like assimilate. I feel like mm-hmm. I read stuff like that in like social studies, and I was like in third grade. Like I feel like they teach you to think that that's like fierce when you're like a little kid. When really, it's like. Wait, why can't people just like be themselves and stuff and like, you know, wear their clothes and like, whatever. Like, I mean, it's also possible to be bilingual. Like, why is, you know, always in making people pick. Can't stand it. So what (laughs) we kind of talked about, like, we started to get there with like that one, like, Protestant guy who was like, you know, God only wants you to do like nuts and like, you know, milk gross so what's the connection between like fat phobia chastity desire like indulgence greed like what are those like religious implications of like the history of fat phobia
1: yeah i I really enjoy that because it gets at the heart of what was really so terrifying to a lot of the europeans who are attempting to manage usually other europeans bodies which was the idea that If you want to be a holy individual, you need to be removed from concerns of the flesh. And concerns of the flesh are undeniably, we need to eat and we need to get it on, right? (laughs) We cannot maintain our population if we are not fed and if people aren't getting busy. But what they were saying as Christians was like, okay, we know this is necessary for procreation, but we don't want people to enjoy it. And so to the extent that people are spending too much time enjoying what they're eating or too much time enjoying sex, they are not serving God. So there is a very clear and important role in all of this That religion has played an under, I think, explored role because there's a way in which we talk about religion today and it seems like something that like old fogies did back in the olden times. But we forget that this country was founded by Puritans and we have not discharged all of our Puritan ways of being.
0: My stepdad always told me growing up that, like, if you want to look at anything in any war, like, it's always about money. And mm-hmm. one thing that I do think that is really scary about this, and it is something that we need to be in, that we need to interrogate. Just in the way that, like, white people will hold up white supremacy, even in detriment to themselves. Right? So there's mm-hmm. that thing. Absolutely. Just how cisgender people will hold up the binary, even if it's killing them. There's that <sighs> thing. Absolutely. When we think about the role that religion has played... If you look at Roman Catholicism, corruption and like staggering greed is like has been interwoven with the the Roman Catholic Church from the very beginning. Then you have the Church of England. Then in the US, it becomes a much more sinister thing as we realize now because like there's tax exempt status. So it's like the more that you can keep like morality tied to your faith, tied to religion, and then use that as a means to like control people to extrapolate their money from them. Like that's the thing. Like it keeps power where it isn't. It like prevents like the transfer of power. I'm just observing, just brainstorming. Mm-hmm. Okay. So as we come into like the implications of this long history of fat phobia, what's at stake for black people that are facing fat phobia today? And how have these perceptions of fat phobia extended beyond food for black people today?
1: Yeah, so when we think about the history of fat phobia, what we have to acknowledge is that there's so much condemnation that's going on right now in the United States surrounding fat Black women, because there is some sense that fat Black women are somehow a burden on the public health. Now, that's absolutely false because it relies on these, again, BMI biomarkers that were created by a couple of white guys in lab coats. So it has nothing to do with the actual health outcomes in communities of color. But because of the way that aesthetics work, because it's so visual, people think they can take a look at a fat person's body and then assume that they know about their health status and then make judgments about their behaviors. Okay, well, we assume as a society that they must not be eating right. They must not be exercising. Why don't they just go to Whole Foods? I actually had a conversation once where someone was like, "But these black people could just eat at Whole Foods. I'm like, do you know where Whole Foods congregates? Because as far as I know, Whole Foods congregates in wealthy, largely white areas. So it's not as if people can just get that food. But also, like, you can get fat
0: as fuck at Whole Foods. like And
1: there's that,
0: right? Like, you can, like, I'll eat, like, 27 pounds of mac and cheese at Whole Foods. Like, I'll freak out on some, like, (laughs) Uncle Eddie's, like, vegan cookies at Whole Foods. Like, there's like 1,500 calories in there and I'll eat like six bags and not blink. So like, get out of my face.
1: Exactly. Like allow people to eat the way that they want to eat and don't make assumptions about where they've gotten their food, how much food they've eaten, how much. If you have no idea. You have literally no idea. And this is what Black people are facing all the time. And so as a person who is Black, but also is a straight-sized ally. So in that way, I have thin privilege. I feel like it's so important that I continue to speak out about the way in which this impacts the Black community and individuals who are most marginalized within it. Because there's always some assumption that, hmm, if we could just educate Black people, we just teach them how to eat and exercise, we will eradicate health disparities. I'm like, that is incorrect. Um, That is not the problem. The problem is twofold. Largely in Black communities, there is a lack of resources. So that's first. So that even though, for example, we may not expect there to be a Whole Foods, frequently in a lot of Black spaces, there isn't a grocery store at all. There's a convenience store. Okay. So if you don't have access to fruits and vegetables, how is it that you're supposed to be eating healthy? So that's, one of the major problems. And then, of course, we have other issues like, do the black neighborhoods have sidewalks? Um, that's also sort of an ongoing thing. So there's all of these ways in which black people and, you know, fat black women specifically are being stigmatized and being told to quote unquote do better. Whereas you can be completely healthy in the body that you are in. And to the extent that being healthy is hard. It's not a matter of your size. It's a matter of do you have access to things that are going to help you lead a healthy life? So,
0: yes. I also feel like yes and yes and yes. And then, <laughs> so what about this part though? Because like, I don't, my brain is like spinning because it's like, it's it's so hard because it's like, this subject is so intersectional and it's so layered and it's like just hard to like keep it all Like, together in your head. But, like, there is also this duality that I can't speak to. That on one hand, a curvy Black woman's body can be seen as, like, sexually satiating and also, like, too much or, like, Mm -hmm. not it at the same time. That's a really confusing space to be in.
1: It really is. And I would suggest that people take a look back at the sort of Mix-a-Lot video, Baby Got Back, because um, if you can believe it, I was actually bold uh, enough to use that in one of my defenses as a graduate student. And my committee didn't know what to do with it, even though I love them. They were like, what is happening? But there's the segment in the introduction in which there's a couple of white girls looking at a Black woman's body. Oh my God, Becky, look at her butt, right? We forget that So I think we often forget that that happened. But what this speaks to is that there is some way in which many folks in the white community like to say, oh my God, black people's bodies are about excess. And then, you know, only what, 20 years later, people are like, yes how do i get a butt like that Mm-mm-mm. so i mean obviously there wasn't some revolution that took place between 1991 and 2011 or whatever what happened was that people were starting to acknowledge that we have long like butts you know women like butts men like butts we need to stop pretending but the pretense had to do with whether or not it was racially appropriate but then once we started to see a little kim kardashian with a butt people were like oh Well, me too. I'll get some
0: of that. If you follow me on socials or listen to Getting Curious and Pretty Curious, then you'll know I've been on a real makeup journey over the last few years. I've especially been enjoying a more colorful eyeshadow moment, and I've been loving incorporating Thrive Cosmetics' full line of makeup into my routine. With clean, skin-loving ingredients, their foolproof products make it easy for any skill level to apply. One thing that's really major about Thrive is how much they're prioritizing giving back. It feels good to know that when I support Thrive, Thrive turns around and supports the communities around them too. I also love that their high-performance formulas are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free and have zero parabens, sulfates, and phthalates. Refresh your everyday look with Thrive Cosmetics, luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 10% off your first order at ThriveCosmetics.com slash Curious. That's ThriveCosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash Curious for 10% off your first order. They always say trust your gut. But one time, my gut told me to bleach my eyebrows. And that was fashionable, but not widely well-received. While probiotics can't help you with most of your gut decisions, it can give your gut a little bit of support. And Ritual has your back. They made a three-in-one supplement with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. Did you know daily disturbances like poor diets, stress, travel, the use of certain medications, and plenty of other factors can throw off your gut microbiome? Oh, no! Enter Ritual. Their Symbiotic Plus has been a gorgeous tool. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash curious. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash curious for 25% off. And so like a lot of these things can be true at once. The history is racist. It's fat phobic. Our medical system now is fat phobic. We don't have mm-hmm. MRA tables for people that are plus size. We don't have straps that are like big enough for people that are plus size. Like it's real, but I feel like I'm literally like broken out in sweat and my t-shirt dress having this conversation. Like I'm profusely sweating, like mm-hmm. so nervous, like having this talk, but it's like, Like, our worth, our self-esteem, our ability to live, like, literally to live, it's all wrapped up in, like, body image and health. And it's, like, as a public figure and as someone who, like, a lot of people talk about this sort of thing to, I feel really flummoxed. Like, I don't know what to do. Like, how to, like, make everyone feel like... It's okay to understand the history. It's also okay to like want to ask for help. Like if you feel like you have a problem and if you feel like you need help because you don't feel good, is that diet culture? How do we empower people to take care of themselves without getting caught up in the shame?
1: This is, I think this is one of the crucial issues. And it is such a difficult thing to navigate because we have to acknowledge that even though there could be those relationships. The difficulty is that the doctors always want to talk to you about weight first. And that is why we really have to rethink the way in which we're doing medicine right now. I've spoken to a lot of fat activists and I've learned so much from them. And one of the fat activists I talked to right after my book came out is a queer person who told me that their wife was recently interested in losing weight, but Their their wife was afraid to talk to them about it because they thought, oh, my gosh, I know that you are a fat activist, but I'm a person who thinks that I could probably reduce my, let's say, knee pain from this activity. And I thought that this fat black queer person's response was excellent to their partner, because what they said to their partner was ultimately, I love you and I support you for what you want to do. And I think that this might be one way in which we can think about this. It's not about all of our society telling everyone what they must weigh. That's the fat phobia that I think we can all agree is problematic and we need to move away from. But there might be individual people who have their own reasons for wanting to think about changing their body size. I mean, so that's where we can say that they have the right to investigate other options for themselves that don't come from the outside community, telling them how they need to look and what they must weigh.
0: Mm. So it reminds me kind of what my friend Alok says about like, it really comes down to like how an individual speaks to for themselves mm-hmm. and how we like talk to a group of people yeah. and like trying to titrate that out. But that sometimes is like really confusing to do. Like Like as a storyteller, sometimes it is like, what's yours to tell, what someone else's to tell. Like, it's just, it really is just like a confusing thing. And I think that, you know, I don't want to be thought of as like fatphobic. I don't want to be thought of as transphobic or like racist or like whatever. Like at the end of the day, it's like everyone wants to like, we all want to be like loved and like feel like we're good people. So like, I don't think anyone's like trying to be fatphobic, but it's like, we are just so quick in this world of body positivity, body neutrality, like of having these conversations. And I think the other thing that I have to remember is is that like hurt people hurt people. And when Mm -hmm. you are like, when you've been hurt and when you have like taken on all of this shit from society individually, and then when you do maybe go out to like express your hurt, like when I feel like I've been fucked over I call her Vanessa. Vanessa comes out. She's like my little in- internal Aaron Brockovich. She's like, Miss Perez. I brought this water special from Hinkley for you. And I hope you fucking die after drinking that hexavalent chromium, bitch. You know, it's like, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to, you know, it, it just came out. But that's the thing is I just think that it's like, I think one thing that I want, my goal is is to be able to like talk about these issues with like outbreaking breaking into like a head to toe sweat without questioning if like, I'm a bad person for having, these questions are like, like no one's a bad person. Well, some people are bad, but most people aren't. And we're trying. I think everyone's doing their best. And if we can like try to give each other the benefit of that doubt, I think it makes these conversations like more healing for people individually when they have them.
1: Yeah, I think what we what we're trying to move toward, at least it seems to me, is a situation in which we do not automatically assume weight is a problem. You know that we don't look at a person and judge them based on their weight. So I think that that is the liberatory move that a lot of people are attempting to make. But within that, that's not to say that everyone must always stay exactly as they are. Like, we still have liberty. There are going to be different people who might want to change their weight. Maybe they want to lose weight. Maybe they want to gain weight. It's not for us to tell them they must never gain weight or they must never lose weight. Because now we're trafficking in the same type of body policing that we claim that we want to move away from.
0: Mm. So what do you think it'll take to dispel the racialized fat phobia?
1: For me, one of the first places that we need to begin is this whole conversation about quote-unquote obesity, because I cannot tell you the number of times I'll be listening to someone and they're talking about fat people in a fat phobic way. And then they're always sort of take the defense of, well, obesity is unhealthy. And so until we can move away from these kinds of claims, the individuals who want to be fat phobic will always have fuel for their flame. So that's to me, that's the very first step, just because of the eminence of medicine. And let's get into that for one second. Yeah. Because obesity,
0: I think one of the reasons why people are so mad about that word is it's like, on that BMI scale, wherever it says like, oh, if you start here and you end here and that means you're considered, you know, obese, it's labeling a whole bunch of people obese that in reality aren't standing at harm for like the real harms of someone who like may need to have that individualized conversation with their doctor. You know what I'm saying? Like some people may be like, you know a different size or whatever but they're not in harm of like a cancer or heart disease or stroke or high blood pressure because maybe where they come from or their like their biology they're fine being at that weight and it's actually like not overweight in their biology but their biologies weren't even really studied accurately because of the history of education you know and The US, Europe, the UK, it was like only white men doing these studies for so long. So like, we just haven't had like an accurate way to like individualize this BMI thing. Is that a fair way to say that like, that's what's so irritating about like this obesity conversation is that like that index isn't a clear representation of everyone?
1: That's one of the major problems because the population that it can best describe is white persons. And even then, it's making a tremendous number of mistakes in miscategorizing people as unhealthy who are just fine. And I think here is another way in which we know that the so-called obesity, discourse is bullshit. Obesity is often used as a predictor of other health outcomes like diabetes or hypertension, but sometimes obesity is used as the disease itself. How can a thing be both a predictor of disease and a disease? It's just like we want so badly to have a way to remind people not to be fat that we're just going to put it at any end of the equation that seems right. And we can see this in so much medical research. We can't claim that the cause and the effect are the same. Um, So what we need to start thinking about instead is looking into people's genetic profiles, family histories, understanding their neighborhoods, understanding the role of structural racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, all of these things are having tremendous negative effects on people's health. These are real predictors. And so instead of focusing on like, how much do you weigh? Let's look at what are all the things that you're living through and how can we actually provide resources to help you?
0: Yes. Because I remember being like 12 and the doctor telling me I was obese, like on the BMI scale. Oh yeah. And I remember him saying that to like me in front of my mom and like me being like, like just so traumatized, like not... You know, so it's like, it's just, it really is such like a massive problem. So who's doing that work? I mean, you're doing that work. You're doing it right now. You did it in your book. Because people a lot of times say to me like, how can I be a better ally for the trans community? And like, I'm, I always have like a myriad of advice for that. So how can people be better allies for the fat community? Ah.
1: Yeah, right. Yes. I think you want to start, first of all, educating yourself. Because I think there are a lot of people who definitely don't want to be fatphobic, but we have all been swimming in fatphobia for the vast majority of our lives, all of us. And so if we haven't started to educate ourselves, then we're probably going to keep reproducing this harm. There's a number of different works to look at right now. There's Deshaun Harrison's The Belly of the Beast. You can get Sonia Renee Taylor's The Body's Not an Apology. Dr. Joy Cox, Fat Girls in Black Bodies. Obviously, people know about Roxane Gay's Hunger, Tressing like takhtoms book Thick. I would say start finding out what are the real origins of these problems, but then also how are they manifesting amongst contemporary fat persons? So I think that's the first point uh, of entry. And then once you've done that, you can also try to consider contributing to the work of a number of different organizations like the, the NAAFA, for example. So there are many different organizations that exist that are advocating on behalf of fat persons. And if you just want to find out more about this through social media, I would suggest following Dr. Jill Andrew. She is a fat Black doctor and she is against BMI. And so she is a powerhouse individual and a font of information. So these are some ways to get started.
0: And what about you? Do you like to be on the Gram or the Twitter? Are you like more active on either one?
1: Well, yes, I am on Twitter. I'm not super active on social media, which a lot of people are like, need to fix that. So for now, you can find me on social media.
0: I will just say, as someone who's gotten to spend some time with you, now that you already like called yourself out and said that you don't do it that much, watching you impersonate historical white men Like, be like, well, we're just gonna do whatever. No, like, the angle of your camera right now, I don't know if you can, like, see it, but, like, it's, no, like, you need to, like, set up the phone, have it be kind of, like, below you so that you could, like, that was, like, genius. It's so funny. You know, and you actually have, like, a major, like, comedic timing to it, which you can also, like... You could, I think there's like a... Th- I feel like it's... a. am sensing like a TikTok. I think you need to hire like a TikTok consultant or something because I think that you could really be like that TikTok star who like literally... What if you're the one who does it? Like, what if you're the one who like literally dispels racialized fat phobia, period? Like, what if... What if it's you?
1: (laughs) I mean, there's definitely a village of people that I am working with, right? So I feel like I get to call on so many folks who have taught me so much um, whenever I do this work. And I do have a little bit of a thing to tease, which is that I do have a podcast of my own coming out. Boom, boom, boom. When does it start? Oh, well, we're still at the, like, organization phases.
0: Please let us know when it is starting. We are, like, shouting it out. We are, like, amplifying it. We would love to do that for you. We, like... We are such a fan.
1: Oh, well, thank you so much. That would be awesome. Do
0: you have a title yet?
1: Yes, the title of my podcast is Hood Prof because I'm a professor, but I come from hood shit. So I'm going to speak the way I speak. (laughs)
0: So what's been your journey researching and writing about this topic? I mean, I know it's kind of like a big question to like start to end on because it's like a whole other can of worms. But like, how did you get into researching this? You are just incredible. And your work is so good. How did you get into this?
1: Well, thank you so much, Jonathan. And so interestingly, I came to this reluctantly. When I was in high school, my grandmother who lived through the Great Migration, actually our family, both sides of my family, made their way to Los Angeles in the Great Migration. And so my grandmother who grew up in a context in which people weren't trying to be thin, people were just trying to eat. Like we're talking about the middle of the 20th century, Jim Crow, Black folks don't have a lot of resources. So my grandmother gets to Los Angeles and she meets a bunch of white women on diets and was like, what? Yeah, you know, and this uh, when like I was in high school, it was in the nineteen nineties. She would like constantly try to pull me into conversations about this, and um, you know, I remember I'd be like, "What? I don't know. Can I get a cupcake?" Whenever she'd bring it up, I don't know, Grandma. Can I get a cupcake? But <laughs> you know, over time, I reflected on these conversations because I was like, "Oh, I think she's hitting at something that people haven't really taken up," and. When I was in my early 20s, I was working at a HIV medication adherence clinic, and I talked to a couple of women, both women of color, who were afraid to take their HIV meds because they didn't want to gain weight. And that really just blew my wig clean off. I thought oh my gosh, people, this is so much more important than I've appreciated. I thought it was just a question of like aesthetics or or vanity or something like that. But no, there's clearly something deeper than that going on here because people are willing to risk their lives in order to, quote unquote, maintain their figures.
0: Yes. And another thing that was just coming up for me that's like three doors away Actually, it's like maybe five blocks away, but I just, you might be like, you're so fucking crazy. But um, it's like skinny people might run into, or like slender people can absolutely have high blood pressure, can totally drop dead of a heart attack, of a stroke, can get cancer, can have joint issues for whatever reason. And it's like, we're not mean and don't have like some sort of like, oh, well, you should have thought of that before you like did this or that or the other thing when it happens to someone who's slender. But if it happens to someone who's fat, all of a sudden it's like, there's this like cruel thing of like, well, you did that to yourself. And even with like slender people who smoke and stuff. Yes. it's. I feel like it's less mean to that than it is to like, and it's like, and why are we being mean to anybody who's having like a health issue? Like we should exactly. just do our best to make it inclusive. And it's like, that. folks are really having like, the fight of their fucking lives to like get healthcare that sees them, serves them. And that's a huge issue. It's like, so I mean, maybe I was like a day late and a dollar short with that like observation, but just as we've been having this conversation, it's like, I feel like that's important. So you have a podcast coming out. Cannot wait. Hood Prof. That's what it is, right? Yes. Hood Prof. Yeah. It's so good. Again, it <laughs> makes me want to slow clap every time I hear it. What's next for you in your work?
1: So I also have a book coming out next year, contract already signed. And because I'm not so active on social media, I haven't even announced it there yet. So this is the first time anyone is hearing about it. I have a book coming out that interrogates the origin and practices of your fuckboys. Because um, guess what? These boys, let's not call them men. These boys are ubiquitous and we're all fucking sick of it. So they've been doing it for a minute? a minute yeah we think of fuckboyism as new but it just now got a label but this has been going on for decades and so i'm giving y'all a little history lesson again but this time i'm telling you about yeah you know, these these boys out here
0: oh my god we gotta have you back for that
1: but some, so <laughs> this book is a lot angrier than the first book so get ready for that
0: we love you so much reading thank you so much for coming on getting curious i feel like we learned so much we love you so much and thank you so much for your work uh.
1: Oh, thank you so much. This has been great. Uh, I've
0: yeah. had a great time. You've been listening to Getting Curious with me, Jonathan Van Ness. Our theme music is Freak by Quinn. Thank you so much to her for letting us use it. If you enjoyed our show, please introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at CuriousJVN. Our editor is Andrew Carson. Getting Curious is produced by me and Erica Ghetto with production support from Julie Carrillo, Chris McClure, and Aaron McKeon.